Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to talk about revival. Now we've had a lot of I've had a lot of discussions with friends lately about revival. Some of you on social media or maybe in the news you've tracked this outpouring going on in Asbury College up in Kentucky. And I want to address that briefly. Uh, I'm excited. I'm happy that it started at a college. This generation of college students is the most broken, dysfunctional our nation has ever stooped to produce. So may God pour out and do something in their lives. Um, but at the same time, we don't have to travel there to get it. And I want us to be aware of that. I'm all for revival. I'm mindful. I'm not a student of revivals. Some of you have been and you've studied a lot. Uh, I'm mindful that when revivals break out, they're not just limited to one chapel or location. They break out worldwide. They may start off at some nexus, but then they spread pretty quickly. And that ought to be the case. And um, anyway, I want to talk about revival this morning. This is a critical subject. And hopefully you'll get something out of it and apply to your own life. Um, revivals are sent by God, but they are not 100% effective. And it just is what it is. It just so happens we're looking at Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a time of great revival, but not everybody was interested in it. Now, it wasn't a running, dancing, hooping, hollering salvation revival. It wasn't a Baptist revival where a bunch of salvations were Pentecostal revivals with a bunch of running and dancing, but it was the kind of revival that saw God do something that needed to be done, reestablish Israel, reestablish the covenant, reestablish the priesthood. But not everybody was interested in his day. And there's probably no greater revival than the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three and a half years of God incarnate in the earth. And not everybody wanted to be a part of it. The whole of the city was condemned. Jerusalem was condemned. They missed the whole of the revival. And then, of course, God gave a round two with Pentecost. And that didn't exactly work well either. Only 3,000 got saved. There should, should have been a lot more. My point is this, is that revivals are wonderful. They're God sins. We need them. We need that time of refreshing, but they're not 100% effective. It is God doing something he wants to do sovereignly, often in reply to prayer, but not everybody's interested in getting with the program. It's like you can't sing songs to a heavy heart. You can't revive people that don't want it. God could pour out of his spirit in our church like he has in other places, and it wouldn't affect every one of you. It just wouldn't. Uh, some Christians, and not just to pick on you guys, but you're who I'm talking to, some Christians you could shove two or three sticks of dynamite under their seat, douse them in honey and fire ants, let them both go at the same time, and some of you would still go, huh. Huh. Because that's about as religious as we are sometimes. Nehemiah chapter 4. Let's read something interesting here. Nehemiah chapter 4. This is kind of how I believe, let's principalize and allegorize this little story here. Nehemiah has come back. Zerubbabel began to build the temple 100 years prior. He succeeded, built the walls of the city, and then they lost favor because of some Samaritans running their mouths, and they, they fell out of favor. The walls were torn down, and then Nehemiah is able to rekindle favor and return to begin to build the walls again. The city was built. The temple, Zerubbabel's temple was built but the walls have been torn down. So really the walls are still there. They've just been knocked down, big stones knocked down. And he wants to rebuild that wall 
to help keep the city safe. That's the whole assignment. It's not rebuilding the temple. It's not rebuilding the city. It's just finding the material that's already there and rebuilding it. But he has an enemy, Sanballat. And then Sanballat, because he can't keep his mouth shut, he quickly draws another enemy, Tobiah, and then Geshem. And then every time they introduce Sanballat, he has another idiot in his rank. Sanballat, then Sanballat, Tobiah, then Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, then Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the Arabians. That's a lot of work for a little kitchen worker to deal with. He just wants to build the wall, and all of a sudden he's got to be a military strategist and an architect. And so this is how it always works. So I, I think we could allegorize and say the voice of Sanballat is the voice of the demon realm who mocks the work of God. So let's look at verse 1. It came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. Well, let them mock us. We don't really care if they mock us as Christians. We're the ones that go to bed without needing pills. We're the ones that wake up without needing pills. We're the ones that stay faithful to our spouse, and our spouse stays faithful to us. We're the ones whose kids aren't crazy with purple hair and face piercings. Let them mock us. We're the ones that lay down in peace and wake up in peace. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria. Now, that's really bad when you've got the Arabians, and an army. And he said, what do these feeble Jews, what are they doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? It's that last sentence that catches my eye in this subject of revival. The demon realm would look at the church and say, will the church be able to revive these stones out of the heaps of rubbish. The New Testament tells us that we are lively stones. And revival, let's, let's semantically split hairs for a minute. Revival is not for the world. I think we understand it. Now, the world will tag along and get born again, but revival is not for the world. You don't revive that which has never been vivified. To be revived, you must first be alive and begin to cool off and need to be revived again or refreshed. Revival is always for the people of God first and foremost. Now we call it revival and God's moving and people are getting saved. That's great. But really what's happening, if judgment begins with us first, revival begins with us as well. And so what we have to first see is God's people catch fire. God's people be reignited. God's people, as this story says, have got to be dug out of the rubbish they've allowed themselves to be tossed down into. Sometimes they throw themselves off their position. If we take the principle of lively stones, we're all set somewhere in this great kingdom, and we don't have permission to quit. Sometimes backsliding jumps in, and you jump into rubbish. You jump into porn. You jump into drinking. You jump into alcohol. You jump into whatever your sin is. Sometimes the enemy comes along and pushes you, or the world throws an attack on you, and you don't want to fall, but you do. I don't really care where we may find ourselves this morning. The devil looks and he asks the church, can the church really revive these stones out of this rubbish heap? Because it's almost like a challenge. I would almost ask the stones, do you want to be revived out of your rubbish heap? Do you want to be revived out of depression? Do you want to be revived out of poverty? Do you want to be revived out of lukewarmness? Do you want to be revived out of the victim mindset? Do you want to be revived out of fear? Because not everybody does want to be revived, which is why... The move of God will take place in the earth, and it won't benefit everybody, though it's designed to. 
The principle of the gospel still applies in revival. It's whosoever will. And not everybody is a candidate to be revived, though revival is for every candidate. But it's totally up to us. You can't encourage people who don't want encouragement. You can't breathe life into people who don't want to be enlivened. And so this has to be the framework with which we approach any revival. I'm all for it. God, bring it. But a couple hard rules about revivals. Number one, they don't help everybody. And we have to be mindful that if it's going to move, it's going to help us. Number two, they can't last forever. Nehemiah's revival of wall building lasted 50 days till the wall was built. And what usually happens, and I'm a little cynical because I've pastored too long now, I think, is you revive somebody. Oh, dig me out, dig me out, dig me out. You breathe life into them. You, you scratch off all the charring of the world and you brush off all the rubbish because these, these stones have been pushed down to the city refuse, the feces, the corpses, the refuse. And you put them back in their place and they're excited till they get bored. Because the kingdom takes fidelity, faithfulness, stability, and you can't be easily moved. So revivals can't last forever because you're only going to revive so many people, get them back in their place, and the church goes on. Revival comes because the church has diminished its strength and diminished its anointing. It's, it's wound down, and so it has to be recharged. But not everybody wants to be recharged. Not everybody wants to be brought out of that rubbish heap and then put back where God wants them. Some people want out of depression to go do their own thing. Some people want out of alcohol to go do their own thing. Some people want healing so they can go do their own thing. But God doesn't revive us for our thing. He revives us to get us out of the rubbish heap, to put us in the wall where he intended us to be in the first place. And if we're not happy being in that place in the wall, don't ask for revival. God will revive us for his name's sake, for his cause's sake. And you got to make sure your cause is greater than your little petty day-to-day cause. It's got to be the kingdom's cause. So let's address this Asbury thing here before we look at a bunch of verses about reviving and refreshing. And they aren't all super feel-good because the kingdom has requirements. So this Asbury, if you don't know, there's a revival going on in the Asbury College up in Kentucky. Happened again 40 years ago or previously 40 years ago. Apparently, that's when Mike Pence got born again, our former vice president. He got born again at Asbury College. He was raised Roman Catholic. They had a revival there 40 years ago, very similar thing, except then they had a lot of preaching, and he gave his life to Christ back then. He was very public about it, just testified of it recently in the news. So we're thinking we're into our 12th day now at this revival at Asbury, and the fascinating thing about it is that there's nobody leading it. It's been around the clock. People just come and sit and worship, pray, tremble under the presence of God. It's just an outpouring. In this regard, I would say it's not a revival like we think because there's no preaching. Therefore, there's not a lot of salvation. And that's okay. You can't be born again without hearing the gospel. That isn't to say nobody's being born again. I don't know. I've not followed it super close. I have some friends that do. It is interesting because there, it's, it is organic in that regard. And they have had thousands and thousands of people now come from around the world. There's a long queue to get in, and they just get in and sit. They, they had to bring the fire marshal in because people were dancing in the balcony. And they're like, okay, okay, if you're going to dance, go to the main floor. This, this balcony's too old. Uh, we don't want to kill anybody. So the college has been very good with it. And people come and go. And there's, there's a long line outside to get in. 
Um, it is interesting that the president of the university had to enact some rules yesterday or Friday. I think today is the last day of 24-7. They will now shutter it and give it limited time. He said, this is still a university. Our kids have finals next week. And he said, um, they want, they've asked everybody over 25 to please stay away. We want this for teens and under 25. They need God more than we do. Pretty cool. They've also asked for no live streaming. They don't want this thing to be mocked or ridiculed. Just come and enjoy the presence of God. Get your fill. Then, then take it back to where you came from instead of making an idol out of it. And they've made stricter hours. And I think there's some wisdom in all this. But this is what strikes me that I like about this. And may it continue and may people go there and take it back. But the reason people are going there is because they're not finding God in their church. They're, they're hungry for God. They're not finding him. And I like, I made a list here, things I like about what I'm reading. There's no celebrities here. There's no famous preacher with a New York Times bestseller because this thing isn't personality driven. They're not coming because they have the newest coffee bar. Because this thing isn't attractionally driven. They're not lined up for a long time outside because they have smoke and lights. Because this thing isn't following the intentionality-driven format. And they're not lining up to buy the newest worship team swag or album because there's no worship. There's no team. People start singing spontaneously a cappella, and just sit in the presence of God. This really ought to be a hard Will Smith slap across the face <laughs> to all the attractional, intentional, missional, relevant models that have worked so hard and wasted so much money being a hipster nightclub coffee bar band show. Because you couldn't get people to line up before your service with a countdown clock that said T minus 17 hours to the next experience, they're just driving to the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, and waiting to get in to see what this is about. This revival, any revival, is for the saints. And so if we want revival, we have to be open to it. But when you're revived... God expects something out of you. And we forget there is an expectation with revival. I'm mindful when God healed Peter's mother-in-law, the Lord Jesus. They went to Peter's house. His mother-in-law lay sick of a fever. The Lord rebuked it. She got up and went shopping and did her own thing. No, you know your Bible? What did she do? She got up and ministered unto them. There's a joke that says the reason Peter denied the Lord is because he healed his mother-in-law. Maybe not a funny joke, maybe a little bit. I think I heard a Baptist told it, tell it, so I'm okay to tell it. She was revived and she got up and served. We cannot forget that the reason God pours out is to equip us to get back with the program. And if you're not interested in getting with the program at the highest level possible, then you don't qualify for reviving. As, as ruthless as it may sound, even in the medical field, you have to qualify for organ donation. 
If you don't, they're not going to give it to you. They're going to let you die. They, if you want the gastric bypass surgery, you have to first lose 100 pounds on your own. Otherwise, they're not wasting their time on you. And you could die. You have to understand that even in the medical field to receive health and life, you have to qualify to receive health and life. Why would they waste organs, eyes, hearts, livers? If you're an alcoholic and won't quit, why would they give you another liver that you're going to kill when there's somebody else who could really use it? So with revival, your heart's got to be, oh God, I want to perform for you. Not that we don't do, do it to, not that we do it to be saved, but I want to perform at the highest level for your glory. If you've ever been like just sick for days, you say, oh, Lord, get me off of this bed and I will, I'll go for a walk. I'll go for a run. I'll go up to the church. I'll do something because I've got to get off this bed. I don't want to be here anymore. Why would God revive people who aren't interested in serving him? And so these folks that are going to this revival, they're hungry for God. Their pastors are starving them to death trying to maybe scratch a seeker-friendly itch and have numbers. So they're, they're wanting more of God. Unfortunately, maybe in their churches, and I try not to do this here, maybe in their churches, the pastor is the roadblock keeping people back and won't push them forward. He's trying to dumb down the standard to draw more lukewarm, mediocre Christians. He becomes the goat gatherer in town and not the shepherd. And they're tired of that. They're like, we want God. We just want God. We've had enough skinny jeans, enough purple lights, enough purple hair, enough nose rings, enough wrist tattoos to fill a stadium. We just want God. We've had all that. Maybe you felt good because you're on the top 10 fastest growing church for the last three months. Maybe that does something for you. It does nothing for the little people. They just want God. But the reason we get God is to do something for him. There's a deliverance maybe that's necessary, maybe a healing, maybe a restoration. But why does God do that? But to further equip us for his kingdom. He doesn't save us for us to go do our thing. He doesn't give you a singing talent so you go to Vegas and join a cabaret. He doesn't deliver you and heal your body so you can go do your own thing. He does everything for his glory. And if you're not willing to live for him for his glory, why would he revive you? Why? Revival is for the church, it's for the saints. Salvation, we might say, is like in the riptide of the revival. And people come in and the lost come in and they just start getting saved because the church is actually moving forward doing something again. You can't revive the dead before you first vivify them. And yet, revival must be the call of every one of us. Go to Psalm 95. Let's look at some verses here about revival. Uh, I'm in the King James Bible this morning. And anytime any one of these words we look at that says revive, the, the Hebrew definition is going to be to quicken. Our cry must be, Lord, quicken me. Quicken me. And that's just old-fashioned way of saying, put life in me. There's the quickening that comes with God. John G. Lake called the lightnings of God. He called it the lightnings, the quickening lightnings of God. If you can imagine a lightning bolt striking your Tesla, you might fully charge that battery and send it to the moon in one blast. But why does God quicken us? To do something for him. If you're not interested in serving him in line with him, why would he quicken you? Cry out to God, but I also got to think if he gets a hold of you, it'll change you, and you'll say, what have I been doing? I've been chasing me. There's a permission for the spectator to be quickened and to be changed. But I also want to point out your revivals, as far as I can judge from the Scripture and history, revivals are the fruit of prayer. And would to God we have more people praying. But at the same time, I see a split 
that so much of the successful, what we might call successful church, is so weak, so seeker-driven, so user-friendly, so marketed, so relevant, those folks don't even know how to pray. And if God were to jumpstart them, what would they do? But wear tighter jeans and have a bigger production. So then it falls to the little guys or the holy guys that just want God. Lord, you got to do something. I'm not going to lower my standard to be a secular preacher. But Lord, you got to move. Lord, you got to move. If you don't move, we're going to dry up. But then I wonder if God gets a hold of us, do we really want to be gotten a hold of? Do we really want to be gotten a hold of? Are we just happy with our middle class, mediocre Christianity? Are we happy with our education and our middle class income and all of our wants supplied because we can work a good job and earn a good wage? Or do we really want God? Are you terrified of what God might speak to you if he were to really get a hold of you? What, what, would, you, what would be your red line if he said, I want you to do this? What's the, what's the thing you'd say? Not that, Lord, that's too far. Because what if that's what he gets a hold of you and asks you to do? I'll go anywhere, Lord, just not Africa. I'll go anywhere, Lord, just not Asia. I'll do anything, Lord, just not ministry. I'll do anything, Lord, I just don't want to start. What's your red line? I'll do anything, Lord, but attend a church. I'll do anything, Lord, but be a tither. Where do you think he's going to start? I don't know if we really want to get a hold of God. I don't know if we really want God to get a hold of us. We are American, and that's not always good or praiseworthy. We're the most fiercely independent culture ever known. We were birthed shaking our fist at authority saying, who are you to tell me what to do? Send them and we'll kill them too. Send us more and we'll kill them. We don't have to have the troops you do or the ships you do. You just keep sending us here. We're going to kill you on our soil. That was our birth. I think it was good back then. Pretty happy to be an American. But at the same time, that's our cultural ethos. And if we're not careful, we forget that the king of kings is not the king of England. Sometimes you slip into that patriotic, jingoistic, shaking your fist, flying that flag, tooting your trump horn, thinking he was a savior. He is not the trump of God. <laughs> now, it would be kind of weird if his name was Shofar. That would might be a little bit more Jewish. <laughs> yeah, but he's not. It's just Trump. Trump of God shall sound. That's why you don't listen to Christian TV. They're full of morons. <laughs> looking for the next cash cow. Do we really want God to get a hold of us? And yet we must. And you'll never know who you're supposed to be until he's able to put his hand fully upon you. And you'll never be really an individual until he puts his hand upon you because then that'll make you different than anybody you're around. Because he'll get a hold of you, strip from you your ego. He'll strip from you your persona. He'll strip from you everything your upbringing fed you with and everything your social media created in you. He'll get a hold of you. He'll just electrocute you till there's nothing. Yes. Just a vivified, vivified set of bones glowing, just chattering. <laughs> and that might be the best you you could ever be. <laughs> and here we are still fighting to be like mama wants us to be and fighting to be like this region wants us to be, and fighting to be like the TBN we foolishly worshipped in the 90s. We ought to say, Lord, whatever you want, just make me. This is where we might want to go a little Calvinistic, say, Lord, I'm the pot. You're the potter. Mold me. Make me tall and skinny. Give me two spouts. Give me a handle. I don't care what you do. Just don't leave me to my own devices. Please don't leave me to my own devices. Psalms. 85 or Psalm 85 verse one, Lord, thou hast 
been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Psalm 85, verse 2. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sins. Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thy anger. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Will thou be angry with us forever? Will thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? One of the evidences of revival is an eagerness to rejoice in God. There are some people... I think you could put jumper cables onto and hook them up to an Ingersoll Rand generator. I don't know much about electricity. Hopefully that's not too shocking to you. <laughs> but I think you could like put enough voltage and amperage through them to jump start a diesel track hoe, and they would go, huh. And that's pretty shameful. Something on the inside of them has got this internal flip switch. They almost like dare you to get them excited about God. But the psalmist said, when you revive us, we're going to rejoice in God. And so we can already begin to see here, one of the ways to perpetuate revival in you is to stay full of joy by rejoicing. And you don't always feel like rejoicing, so this should not shock us. Revival takes faith. I don't want us to just focus on a corporate revival, but what about a personal revival? A remnant is full of God when nobody around them is. And remnants, man, they're like the Navy SEALs of the body of Christ because they're zealous and full of joy when all around them is hell and depression and sorrow and corruption. And yet there's no revival because when there's a revival, the remnant swells. But why not? Why don't we have a personal revival regularly? Why don't we revive ourselves by rejoicing. One of my friends years ago taught, he said, when you're low on fuel, you refuel. And when you're low on supplies, you resupply. And when you're low on joy, you rejoice. And that takes faith because you don't always feel like it. This is a way you maintain a personal revival. I'm all for revival. I'm not up for chasing revivals. I'm up for a personal revival because you can get God in your prayer closet if you'll get God in your prayer closet. And you don't do it by being dirty. And you don't do it by feeling sorry for yourself. It might be a good place to start just reading the Psalms out loud and maybe acting them out <laughs> instead of just reading them like some dead liturgy. I mean, if you're going to read it like a dead liturgy, thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thy anger. Turn us, O God of our salvation. Why not just take a board in there and hit yourself over the head like the Monty Python monks? See law. Crack. <laughs> maybe, maybe it becomes like a drinking game for you. Every time you say, oh, God, you crack yourself in the head. And maybe that'll knock some sense into you. I've never done drinking games. I'm just familiar with the concept. Some of you, you've got victim games. Every time somebody says a triggering word, you fall into the victim again. I'd rather you play a drinking game than the victim game. Every time somebody, somebody utters that slur you were trained to be responsive to, you, you get triggered. And we're still trying to talk faith into you. We can't trigger you with the name of Jesus, but boy, has it your race trained you to be offended by a stupid word that people make millions of dollars off of record singing. I think that's the epitome of hypocrisy. Don't call me, don't tell me you're a victim when you sing it every day. 
You're not a victim. You are an agent of opportunity. And that makes you compromised. Will thou not revive us again? That ought to be our cry. Lord, revive us that we might rejoice in you. Show us mercy, O Lord. Show us mercy and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not return again to folly. Maybe we need reviving because we've been in sinful folly for so long. But we don't have to stay there. Why not revive us individually and then come to